Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, quoting Isaiah 7, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And Father, we just ask as we take this time now to avail our hearts to the word of God, that as we continue now to worship, Lord, as we've sang and prayed and celebrated and enjoyed the children, Lord, that we would continue now in a heart of worship towards you by giving our attention to the truth and the authority of your spirit-inspired word. So, Lord, prepare each one of us accordingly. You know what that means for each one of us. Take away that which would hinder. Lord, for many of us, hearing what the voice of your Holy Spirit needs and wants to say to each of us this morning through what you have spoken in your word. Bless this time now we ask expectantly together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it is possible this morning that you may be, or even you may still find yourself before it's over, struggling through Christmas. And yes, I didn't say celebrating Christmas, though I think we all should be seeking to do that. It is very likely you may find yourself struggling through Christmas. And I want to say, if that is the case, that the antidote to help with struggling through Christmas is more focus on presence. Now, before you think I'm wrongly encouraging you to numb your pain by going out and spending excess money in shopping to somehow think that would help, let me clarify, because sometimes paying attention to the smallest details brings a major shift in things. When I say the important antidote to struggling through Christmas is more focus on presence, I don't mean more focus on presence, spelling P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S, that is presence materially that we would wrap and put under a tree, but I'm talking about greater focus on presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, that is the presence of the Lord. The presence of God, what we read about here, God being with us, that this celebration that we call Christmas is about, as we just read, Emmanuel, which is God with us. The presence of God 
being available to us through the birth of Jesus Christ. And though we may struggle because things may not be as we wish, maybe everything is not as we wish at times at Christmas, maybe everyone we wish was together with us is not together with us, but that being said, God's heart is that we would still see value in being able to appreciate the fact that God is available to us, that his presence is available to us regardless, and that always has value and provides something to rejoice in and be grateful for. You know, it is my personal conviction, I think the Western culture, that we have created quite a overly romanticized view of the Christmas holiday and celebration, from everything from the special decorations to all the lights that create that, you know, beautiful ambiance, if you would, that feels so cozy, or if it's the fuzzy Hallmark movies. I grew up raising three daughters. They're all married now, so now my son-in-laws get the same privilege. Uh, Four ladies in the house, lots of those fuzzy Hallmark movies and the white Christmas and the inspiring sentimental love stories and the miraculous things that would happen. And then, of course, at Christmas time, we have all the upbeat songs that we hear either on the radio station or maybe while we're out shopping. Things like, have a holly jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. Or songs that say things like, I'll be home for Christmas. You can count on me. And some of you are saying this morning, yeah, right. That didn't happen. And that may be part of why you're struggling for Christmas, because maybe someone didn't show up that you were hoping they would. Or, of course, there are songs as well, things like, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap, hap, happiest season of all. And look, let me just say this morning, though that may be the case for some, depending upon their circumstances this year, and I don't want to rob anyone from having a merry spirit and being happy. I mean, praise the Lord. We should rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve and mourn with those who grieve and mourn. Both are normal things. And so if it's a wonderful, happy season, praise the Lord for that. We don't want to bring a downer on that. But it is also true that for many, for different reasons, this is a very difficult time of year. This is a very hard thing to navigate through Christmas. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that was you in a prior year, and you can fully relate to and associate with that difficulty of navigating the Christmas holiday. And when we read the biblical narrative that gives us the record of the events of what transpired with our Lord Jesus Christ being born, though we do find people worshiping and being grateful and celebrating that Jesus was born, and you can see that, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, and then in Luke chapters 1 and 2, you get the biblical narrative of the birth of Christ. Beyond a few people worshiping and celebrating the fact that Christ was born, when you look at the biblical narrative of the Christmas story, you find that most of the events unfolding in connection to God's plan actually included a lot of struggle. I mean, if you read Matthew 1 and Matthew 2 and Luke 1 and Luke 2, you see in connection to God's plan unfolding and the Christmas story happening that first Christmas, you find godly people who love the Lord 
who were righteous, who were struggling through Christmas. And I think to some degree, perhaps just showing us in the honest biblical account, that's okay. That may even be realistic, that we struggle our way even through Christmas. Matthew chapter 1 here records the birth of Jesus, revealing to us Joseph's side of the struggle. And we see Joseph, the stepfather, the, the, the human surrogate, if you would, that stepped in as, as Mary was the earthly biological mother of Jesus. Joseph, in a sense, was a, a stepfather who helped raise him. God was his, earth, uh, was his heavenly father. But we see the struggle that Joseph is going through here. And from the struggle, I think that we can kind of find some helpful things in the midst of the story. Look with me, if you would, back in verse 18, as we kind of work our way to the text, it begins to tell us, verse 18, that the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. So this is Matthew's account. He shares from Joseph's side. Luke shares mainly from Mary's side. And he says, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that is in literal marriage, where they consummated the marriage, moved in together, she was, verse 18, found with child of the Holy Spirit. So notice, the record of this event from Joseph's side opens with focusing on right away the dilemma of Joseph first discovering that his precious fiance, whom he loved deeply, the Virgin Mary, is now pregnant somehow. And all of a sudden, he's got a major dilemma. It tells us in verse 18 that it was at this time that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. Now, a betrothal was much like uh, we would call an espousal or an engagement. We refer to it in our day, only it was much more legally binding in that culture. To the degree that you can tell Joseph and Mary, the language here, he already refers to take to you Mary your wife. So the Bible already refers to him as his wife, and they're not even technically legally fully married yet. They're still in the espousal or the betrothal period. It was so concrete, the espousal and betrothal period in that culture, if someone died why betrothed, that person was then considered a widow. If you wanted to be released from an engagement or a betrothal in the ancient culture, you had to get a legalized certificate of divorce to be released from that betrothal. So basically, the couple was, from all practical purposes, considered in the eyes of the society as a married couple, except the fact that they had not yet participated in the ceremony, they had not come together and moved in together yet, and of course, they had not yet physically consummated the marriage through physical union. So period typically of a betrothal was about a year. That was kind of like the engagement period. And during that time, they would live separately. After the arrangements were made, the dowries were set up by the, the father and the, and the groom-to-be and all that was arranged. They then entered into the betrothal. And during that one-year period, the male typically was working and preparing a lodging place where he would then one day bring his bride to after they were officially married, where they would live together. So he was preparing the place for her. And for the female, she was further learning and preparing herself to be a wife and mainly had that gap of time to verify her purity. 
So the fact that there was a 10-month or a one-year span, it was a time, in a sense, to further convey the sincerity, this is my virgin daughter, she is pure, that there's, there's, they're not getting married because there was a pregnancy or something like that. So it was a time period to establish those things. But again, very, very binding, and it's during this process of the betrothal or the engagement period that the events of Luke chapter 1 transpire. And the events of Luke chapter 1 tell us that God privately announces to young godly Virgin Mary that she has been selected with a high honor to become the birth mother of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, let me just read it to you for acquaintance, says it this way. Luke 1, which happens during the betrothal, says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a village of Galilee to a virgin named Mary. She was pledged or engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And Gabriel appeared to her and said, the angel, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean by this. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, behold, how can this be? Or how can this happen, the idea is. I am a virgin, she said. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby who will be born shall be holy and will be called the Son of God. For nothing is impossible with God. Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. In other words, she was conveying God's will be done. So here's Mary. She's engaged to marry the, the man of her dream. She's looking forward to being married to Joseph. And then all of a sudden, God breaks into her world. The angel Gabriel shows up and announces to her that she's been selected by God to be the mother of the Messiah, the Savior, and through a miracle of God's spirit, the life of the eternally existent son of God would be deposited into her virgin womb through a miracle of the Holy Spirit. That's why we refer to the miraculous conception of Jesus Christ. This is the idea behind that, is that not through natural means, but through a miracle of God's spirit, in accordance as we read as well, and we'll see with the prophecy that the virgin would conceive in her womb, God would uniquely and distinctly cause Mary to conceive a baby within her womb. And what it was, was God was miraculously taking the life as he, of his eternally existent son, the son of God, and depositing his son's life into Mary's womb. Again, so important to always realize. Often we think about Christmas and we think, oh, that's the time Jesus' life began. Not really. Jesus has been eternally existent with God the Father, with God the Holy Spirit. Jesus helped create the heavens and the earth. Jesus' human life as a man began at what we celebrate as Christmas when he was born as a baby as he entered into this world as a human being. 
But Jesus has been eternally existent, ruling on the throne of God forever. And what Jesus did was add a second nature unto himself. He took a human nature by coming in the most humble, vulnerable form of being born as a baby. And so God miraculously, by the power of his Holy Spirit, deposits the life of his son into Mary's womb. At this time, as a virgin woman, she conceives miraculously so that Jesus could be born being both fully God, remaining God, but also now becoming fully man simultaneously. He wasn't 50% man, 50% God. He was fully God, remaining God, and also now became fully man because of the way that God brought this miracle to pass of entering his son into the world. This is what we often refer to as the incarnation. The idea is God becoming man. God becoming flesh and blood as a human being to dwell among us. God took a human body. He was God with skin on. And so God comes enters into this world through the life of his son to both reveal God and to reconcile sinful mankind. So imagine this reality unfolding as as Matthew records it here. Here's this happy, excited young couple. They're engaged. Everything has been going well. I mean, this is a man and a woman who is a just man. It tells us of Joseph. He was a godly, just, righteous man. Mary was a virgin in a very, uh, you might say, kind of promiscuous, uh, carnal, urban environment. Nazareth was a rough town. And so yet she was this godly woman. She maintained her purity. She loved God. She wasn't conformed to the pattern. So here you have this godly young couple. They've done everything right and well, and they're preparing for marriage. And then all of a sudden, God throws a curveball into that. God intervenes into this situation, interrupts by his plan, and allows for them to struggle for the first Christmas season. God enters them technically into the struggle as part of his overall plan, which ultimately, of course, is for good. But it didn't start out probably feeling very good because this was a real difficulty. God chose this couple for his purpose, and he wanted to use them in a different way than what they originally probably planned or anticipated. Mary discovers what God intends for her, But she also recognizes real quick all the challenges that that's going to bring, all the changes. And she humbly submits to the will of God in faith and also knows she has just inherited a whole lot of not only just responsibility. I mean, imagine raising the son of God. I mean, we think it's stressful raising our children. Imagine that responsibility. And yet on top of that, understand Mary realized she just inherited a whole lot of misunderstanding. Because all of a sudden, this is going to look scandalous now. She's pregnant? For real? Oh, come on, Mary. God? That's a pretty lame story. I mean, just imagine the reality of what this was like for Mary. And now Joseph, who it seems initially knows none of this yet, apparently she's not conveyed it. The Bible conveys that Mary, after receiving that message, it seems, went off to visit her relative Elizabeth for three months. So she gets the message that she's going to be impregnated, miraculously conceived the Son of God within her womb. She then goes to visit her relative Elizabeth for a few months. She's away. She's trying to process this. And then she comes back a few months later, and guess what she's starting to do? Show. That's what verse 18 describes. Look at it there. It says, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph... 
before they came together, look what it says, she was found. The idea is discovered. She was found to be with child, and of course the Bible clarifies to emphasize it was of the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, after the betrothal and before Mary and Joseph came together in marriage, she is now found or discovered to be with a child. Imagine how genuinely that played out in real human experiences, the initial utter shock for Joseph. I mean, just imagine the hurt and the anger and all the emotions that he felt, whether he saw it first when she first arrived or the guys in the community in the carpenter shop you know, came to this, Joseph, we just saw Mary. She's pregnant, man. And I just imagine all of that crashing down, the confusion. You know, was Joseph involved? Was Joseph guilty? Was he the father? And, and, and that's the first, perhaps, initial thought. And then when Joseph emphasizes and clarifies, look, absolutely not, and he's hurt and angered and he's not understanding himself, the only other possibilities seem like, well, now there's unfaithfulness. She's committed adultery, and that would be considered adultery if you were betrothed in that culture. And then Mary, perhaps, trying to explain, you know, the synagogue stares and the snide remarks, and eventually, you know, because there's always one like that that's self-righteous in every community of God's people. All right, Mary, who is it? Who's the father? This is horrible. And, the, and then her trying to, it's the Holy Spirit. I mean, just imagine the, the appearance of it and her trying to convey this reality. And here Joseph, again, his dreams have been crushed, this young man, the pain, the betrayal, the wounds. How could God allow something like this to happen? He's got to be thinking so hard. Why, why would God let such a horrible, painful thing happen? It must have seemed like everything was lost, like the world was falling apart on him. And uh, I mean, it'd be an understatement to say that Joseph felt very hurt, felt extremely betrayed and confused and had questions why God was allowing this, what was going on, how does this make sense, and that Joseph would have been struggling through the first Christmas and that he was wrestling. And look, let me say this morning, perhaps your Christmas season right now this year is characterized by some of the same hardships. It is very possible, whether you're in church this morning or watching online, that your Christmas has been a Christmas where you're dealing with some severe disappointment. Or perhaps this Christmas, you're dealing with some severe hurt. Perhaps this Christmas, you find yourself dealing with severe frustration or maybe real worries and anxieties about just what's going on right now in your life. Let me say struggles and hardship and pain do not always mean something's wrong. There was struggles and hardship and pain and difficulty, and nothing was wrong. They hadn't done anything wrong. God wasn't mad at them. They, they weren't being punished. It was just a part of their human navigation in this earthly life. And honestly, it was even a part of just realities of life. But we have to remember that part of human existence in a fallen world that's defiled by sin means hardship and struggle. It's just a part of human existence. I think we have to be very careful sometimes that we don't try and overly read into every human hardship. 
that we don't try and overly interpret when the reality is this is just a part of earth. It's a part of earth. Jesus himself said in John 16, I want you to have peace in me. And then he said this, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. I'm sure that's not in your Bible promise book, but it's a Bible promise. Here on earth, Jesus said, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. We're told as well in Acts 14, as Paul was strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue on in their faith and not give up, he said this, we must pass through many tribulations, the idea is through lots of hardships, before we enter the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul was saying, look, don't give up. Don't stop believing. Don't get mad at God. Don't, don't confuse yourself. He says, look, until we get to the kingdom of God, on our journey there, we're all going to pass through different hardships, struggles, trials. The reality is it is part of the earthly journey till heaven. There will be degrees of hardship. And to some degree, if we were all honest, that's part of what makes heaven very appealing. That life is not very heavenly. And it's part of what makes our heart be attached to the eternal realities and the hope of one day being in glory in heaven. Well, here's Joseph wrestling with this reality. He's now confronted with Mary's pregnant. She's found with child. And he probably feels trapped with little option of what to do. Look at verse 19. It says, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, he was a righteous, godly man, not wanting to make her a public example to shame or to embarrass her was minded to put her away, the idea is to give her a certificate of divorce, but to do it secretly or quietly. So Joseph, this godly man, because he's righteous in how he lives, handled his affairs, notice, wanting to honor God. Though he's deeply hurt at this point yet, because he doesn't have the full story with this situation connected to Mary, rather than publicly shame her, and though he even had, according to the letter of the Mosaic law, he had the right to harshly take Mary out into the public square and have her stoned to death publicly for adultery. He had that recourse and that option. But rather than do that, he retreated, sought God for direction in the midst of his hurt and hardship, thought it through, let his emotions settle down before just impulsively deciding or acting hastily in the midst of his hurt and confusion, and instead his response as he comes out the back end of that trying to honor God is he's directed by a spirit of mercy and grace. And he chooses at this moment, instead of an anger and hurt, to harm her, to lovingly seek to keep the situation quiet, and to shield and protect her, and to just to quietly, according to Deuteronomy 24, release himself from the marital obligation because it looks like there's been infidelity and so he's going to just handle it with mercy but try and just dismiss himself from the relationship that, that he's engaged in and look i have to say thank goodness can you imagine if joseph would have just responded in his human feelings of hurt and anger and not having all the facts and just would have in a hastily way let those anger and, and strong emotions drive him, what a horrible choice. If he would have dragged the mother of the Son of God to the public square and tried to stone her to death, that would have been a really bad decision. Thank goodness Joseph, being a godly man in the midst of his painful, hard situation, 
was willing to seek God, not be driven by his emotions and feelings and thoughts, and to take time to be able to recognize that God is still involved, God must have a plan, and his willingness to seek God, to yield and surrender to God in faith, even when he's in a hard time, and to trust God, boy, that was very, very wise and helpful. And it's a fantastic example for all of us. Let me just say this morning, when you are hurt by someone, or when you just find yourself hurting for any reason, be careful not to overreact when the pain is really severe. Be careful of that. If you want to do what is just and continue to honor God, my encouragement would be even when you have been hurt or even when at times we may be hurting, as hard as it is to yield yourself over to God, and to trust the Lord, though you don't have all the answers, and to surrender your heart to the situation and keep honoring God through it. And I assure you, things will come out much better on the back end if you can take that act of faith. First Peter chapter 4 says this, if anyone suffers as a Christian, wait a minute, don't some churches teach that Christians never suffer? Maybe they should read the Bible, I don't know. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... That is, as the one who follows Christ, let him not be ashamed. Oh, if you're suffering as a Christian, you don't have faith or, or, or you've done something wrong, you're in sin, so God's punishing you because you should be able to name and claim and, and get yourself out of it. You should be ashamed to suffer as a Christian. God says, no, you should be ashamed telling Christians they can't suffer because that's a lie. God doesn't promise that Christians don't suffer. God says that at times, just like our Savior, we endure the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. But he says, if someone suffers a Christian, don't be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the matter. Oh, when we're hurting, when we're suffering, when we're struggling, what do we do? What do we do? There's so many different things we're trying to figure out in the midst of hardships, but God says, here's one thing. You can always just boil it back down to this. Don't feel ashamed like something's wrong if you're suffering. Just try and take your suffering and somehow glorify God in the suffering. You can always just reduce that. God, I'm not going to try and figure this out, the what, but what I'm, God, I'm going to, how can I glorify you in the midst of this struggle? How can I glorify you in the midst of my suffering or my hardship? And you can never lose if you do that. If you just try and glorify God through the midst of it and give God time. Look, as Joseph takes time to wait and think, he gives God time to work and to speak, because look what happens. Verse 20, while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, I have that underlined, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So perhaps after all the mental and emotional trauma and you know, like the exhaustion, if you've ever gone through heavy mental and emotional trauma, I mean, just you just literally can feel exhausted. And perhaps Joseph is just exhausted from all the emotional trauma. He falls asleep. And while he's asleep, the Bible tells here, while he's asleep, now everything's out of his control, right? That's the freaky part about sleep. You go to sleep, and for six, seven, eight hours, you're not controlling anything. He's completely out of control to the greatest degree. And while he's sleeping, God indicates through a dream, despite how everything looks, Joseph, things aren't going wrong. Despite how confusing it appears, 
Though the circumstances were difficult and it was requiring some human struggle, that God was still in control and he was involved in Joseph and Mary's life still. And he was still you know, aware of what was happening. He wasn't abandoning them. He hadn't turned away from them. Joseph, you're not abandoned. The earthly hardship and human struggle, it actually has a higher purpose. Notice basically three things happen in the midst of this dream, this revelation he receives from the angel in our verses here. The first thing that happens is he gets a reminder of who he was. He gets a reminder of who he was. Look what it says there in verse 20. The angel says, Joseph, and the angel draws to attention, son of David. Does that ring a bell, Joseph? Did you forget who you were? You're an ancestor of King David, the Davidic covenant that promised that the Messiah, the Savior, would come through the family line of who? David. Joseph, have you forgotten who you were? He's reminding him who he was. And, you know, I think sometimes the Lord in the midst of our hardship, wants to remind us who we are. You're not some orphan. You're a child of God. He loves you. And despite the hardship, he loves you, and he's involved, and he wants to take care of you. He also gets a request made of him to trust God and keep moving forward. He said, Joseph, son of David, look what he tells him to do. Don't be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in hers of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Joseph Despite what you think or your trust God, keep moving forward. Just keep moving forward, Joseph. Don't retract. Don't give up. Don't turn away. Don't run off. Keep going forward. Don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. In other words, keep moving forward. Trust the Lord and keep doing the same thing. And then he gets a powerful revelation. That which is conceived in her, this child, is indeed, here's probably the confirmation of what Mary was trying to convince him of maybe, it is of the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of God that's done this. In verse 21, the biggest revelation, she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So now Joseph is brought into the know that the reason why Mary has become impregnated with this child miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit is because God was solving a major human dilemma a human dilemma that people could not solve. Humanity had a universal problem. They were all guilty sinners before a holy and a righteous God. This child, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. You know, the Bible is very clear about one thing that we all share in common as human beings, and that is that we are universally all imperfect and failures. Romans chapter 3 tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the standard of the glory of God. That every single one of us, whether we are trying to be good or trying our best to be bad, the Bible says, here's the standard, nobody meets it. Be the same way if we went down to the beach, did the polar plunge today, and we all jumped in the Atlantic Ocean and said, let's swim to Europe, right? Some of us would put in our toe and run away. Some of us might get a 10 foot out. Some of us may get, you know, 50 yards out. If it was a warm summer day, some people, maybe you could swim a mile or two, but guess what? nobody's going to reach Europe. I don't care who you are. You're not going to, you're all going to fall short of the standard. Oh, I'm better than him. I'm not like these drug dealers out on the street. I'm not like, but you're still imperfect. We're all sinful. You only got to break one law to be a lawbreaker. We have retired police officers in the fellowship here. I'm sure they could assure you of that. One broken law, you're a lawbreaker. A broken law is a broken law. 
We all, in things we think, things we say, things we do, we all are sinful, and our sin makes us guilty before a holy and a righteous God. The standard for heaven is perfection. No one meets it. The reality of being punished in hell forever is because our sin makes us guilty before God, and if we cannot enter into heaven eternally, there is only one other option, and that is to be punished in hell forever, separated from God, in unholiness and unrighteousness, and, and to be tortured forever and ever. And so Jesus came because God loves us, and God does not want that to be the fate of humanity. God loves us, and so therefore Jesus came. He was sent to provide a way to spare humanity from the guilt of our sin. Jesus, Jehovah is salvation, or Yahweh saves, speaks of how God became the Savior. God himself actually became the Savior. Unlike others who are born to live, Jesus was born to die. He was literally born as a man to die for the sin punishment of the world. I hope that doesn't mean my time's up. <laughs> I'm, I'm wrapping it up, I promise. S specifically, Jesus came to live the sinless life as a human being, as a man that you and I can't. So guess what he did? We fall short of the glory of God. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. So he came to live as a man, as a human, to do what we can't do as human beings. He lived the sinless, perfect, righteous life that's the standard to be acceptable to enter into God. And then he also, as a human being, took all the punishment and the pain and the suffering as he died on the cross for our sins that we deserve for all of our sins so that he could take all the guilt and punishment, spare us of that, and give us his innocence and righteousness so that we can be acceptable to go to God in heaven. Man, I can't think of a better exchange that exists. That's why John chapter 1 says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus came for. John chapter 3 says that it was God's love that motivated this. Remember, Jesus declared, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever would just believe in him wouldn't perish eternally but have everlasting life. And he said, and God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, spared, saved, delivered. And look, for him to save his people from their sins indicates that one thing that we need to all come to terms with if we're ever going to experience what Jesus is offering us is this, you need to be saved. No, I don't. Yes, you do. I'm a pretty religious person. doesn't matter. We're all sinners before a holy and a righteous God. If one of us didn't need to be saved, why would God, as a loving Father, send the Son of God into this world to live humbly as a, as, as a man, to become a little baby, and then to watch his Son be mistreated by humanity and mocked and misunderstood and spit upon and his beard ripped out of his face and punched in his face and nailed to a cross and to bleed out his life. Into, would you do that to your son? If people say, I'm religious enough, God. I'm, I'm religious. I'm fine. They're just saying that because they want me to do that born-again thing in church. No, God loves us, and the reason Jesus did what he did is because that was necessary because no religious activity we could do can ever spare our soul. And Jesus came to lovingly do this. The Bible says the wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But it's a gift, right? 
you got to choose what to do with a gift. I, I can pay for someone's gift. I can wrap someone's gift. I can hand someone their gift. I can have their name on it. But then they have an option. They can say, you know what? I know you paid for that. I didn't. I know that you're giving this to me and offering this to me, but I don't want it. And they could choose to refuse it. Or that gift doesn't really become theirs until they receive it and open it and experience it. Then it becomes their gift. Same way with the gift of God. God offers the gift to be forgiven of our sins, to have the gift of eternal life, to go to heaven. But we have to choose whether we're going to reject God's gift, which is Jesus, or whether at some point we're going to humbly receive God's gift, realizing that we need such. So important and very important, and to be the greatest gift you could receive at Christmas if you haven't done it yet. So here's Joseph navigating these things. He now gets brought into the know and finds out his very hardship was actually part of bringing his life into alignment with God's plan. Imagine that, struggle and hardship, but yet God able to use struggle and hardship and bring our life into alignment with God's plan, that this earthly difficulty was something God was still involved, and part of the temporary struggle was connected to a much bigger thing that Joseph and Mary were not aware of and just would, in some senses, see as time unfolded further. Well, look as our text finishes up. It says, so all this was done, here's why, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now he quotes Isaiah chapter 7, our last verse here, from the Old Testament, that behold, the virgin shall be with a child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, and then the Bible tells us, which translated literally means God with us. So what appeared to be this problem initially causing human struggle circumstantially, actually the Bible tells us was God orchestrating something that lined up with the scripture fulfilled a prophecy from 700 years ago. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, 700 years prior to the birth of Christ, God predicted exactly how he would one day send his son into the world through the very means of the miraculous conception and the virgin birth, God would do it in such a way so that it would be so absolutely evident that hopefully people wouldn't miss it. And so God says, this is what I'm going to do. And now 700 years later, God's keeping his word and he's bringing it to pass. To me, that calls sake to say God's very reliable. Maybe no one else keeps their word. God keeps his word. You can take God's word to the bank. 700 years later, God was still able to keep a promise 700 years later. And he delivered on what he said. And we're told that Jesus, one of his many names, would be called Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That he was God amongst us here because he loves and wants to help. And please notice, if you would, God does not primarily want something from us a religious lifestyle, religious do's and don'ts. God doesn't primarily want something from us. The Bible shows us that God wants to give something to us. And what he wants to give to us is himself, his life, his literal presence in a real way. Look what this struggle resulted in. Consider the benefits. The benefit of the struggle was it ultimately produced God with us. That is what the heart of God is. God came to be with us initially. Jesus came to reveal God so that we could see what God was really like. Not what we think he's like or we heard he's like, but Jesus came to reveal God. He was with us initially to reveal what God was like and to rescue us from our sin 
to save us from sin's punishment and, and, and the punishment of hell and the power of sin from controlling our life. He was with us initially. But secondarily, Jesus is also God with us presently. Because now, because of what Jesus has made available in his death and resurrection, if you receive Jesus Christ, he literally indwells and becomes a part of your life. And he dwells inside of you by his spirit. Jesus said, I will come to you and be in you. And look, Jesus being with us, God being with us in our life continually is such a help and solution for things like loneliness. If you're a Christian this morning and the spirit of the Lord dwells inside of you, you may at times feel lonely, but you're never alone. You truly are not. You are never alone. Jesus said, I'll, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And what a wonderful thing to overcome loneliness by the presence of the Lord, by God being with you, to help with emptiness and weakness in our struggles. I can't do this. Well, with God, nothing's impossible. The presence of God being with you now is such a wonderful thing. And look, if that weren't enough, he came initially and presently, but God also desires to be with us eternally. Because for those of us who receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, one day we are going to get to be with him forever freed from struggle out of this earth and into the glories of heaven. Revelation 21, speaking of the glory of that eternal realm for those of us who've received Jesus Christ to one day be with him forever, says it this way. Please hear it as we conclude. He says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are true and faithful. What a glorious hope to be able to have, to know that all human struggles will one day cease and never return, and to be in the glorious presence of God with God in the eternal realm of beauty and peace and joy everlasting, and literally to be with God forever. What a glorious thing to get to celebrate. 